Hey, welcome everyone to episode 80 of Today in the Scene. I'm Joe with Indie Arcade Wave, and I just want to say thank you to everyone that's checking us out. If you haven't already subscribed, um, we really appreciate that, and we appreciate likes, shares, follows, things like that. Um, this week, we're going to jump into an arcade that is pretty close to me, and we're going to be talking to somebody that actually runs the arcade nationally. So his name is David Hayden. Uh, he's the communications manager for the company. He's been with UpDown basically since the beginning, so we're going to have some some cool insight from him here. Um, and we're just going to talk about it. So welcome, David. How are you doing? Yeah, doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad that you were able to get on here and we could finally talk about UpDown. Um, so let's just jump right in and talk about yourself. So tell me a little bit about yourself and kind of where you got started with the arcade scene. Um, man, uh, you, know, you, you, you can tell from the gray hair that I'm a little bit older. Um, and I grew up, you know, playing games uh when i was a kid my dad when i was very young my dad worked at a bowling alley and uh brought home a 1979 uh midway double play it was a baseball game where literally the batter was a line uh and you just had a button to swing the bat uh and we had a pinball game that he had gotten from work uh and i mean i grew up with those in the house and you know, we, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So I think those games saved him a ton of money because every time I'd ask for a Nintendo or, you know, to go have quarters to go to the arcade, he would just say, well, you got an arcade game in your room. What do you, what do you need to go play something else for? And so I just always longed for those quarters and saving them all up to, uh, you know, ride my bike to the Dairy Queen down the street and play games or the grocery store. Uh, playing games like Tempest and Kangaroo and, uh, you know, kind of the early 80s games are really where my passion developed. And, uh, you know, over time, you know, even in high school for my senior week, we went to the National Video Game and Coin-Off Hall of Fame and Museum in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, which is no longer there. And uh, Anytime there was a pop-up with a few arcade games here in Kansas City, uh, I'd be there. I'd, I'd be playing playing anything I could. And then down the road, this opportunity presented itself, and someone introduced me to the guys from UpDown and said they were looking for a spot for their second location. And it just seemed like a fit, and I was on board. Yeah, that actually leads really well into the next question I wanted to ask, and that was – when did everything start up with UpDown and when did you join the company? So like, I'm sure you know the story of like how everything came to be. So let all the listeners know like how UpDown really started and then where you jumped in and kind of what's happened since. Sure. Um, yeah. So there's three owners of UpDown and they all work together at a bar in Iowa City, Iowa, and decided that there was a space for or a need for a live music venue in Des Moines. And so the three of them went in as partners and opened up um, a concert venue called Woolies. Uh, there was a bar downstairs from Woolies that did a lot of its business, you know, just from people before and after shows that went out of business. The landlord asked them if they would like to take over the space and they said yes. And they had been to an arcade bar in another city, but liked the concept, didn't like the execution. Um, it was more of a club feel. There was, you know, a cover charge and a velvet rope and bottle service and stuff that they just didn't 
you know, that wasn't what they were anticipating. So they'd always kind of had this idea of opening one that was a little bit different. And so when this opportunity to have the space downstairs opened, uh, opened up, they jumped on it. And 27 days after they signed the lease, they had built the bar themselves. They had done all the lighting and brought in the games and opened the first up down. Uh, I came on board about 10, 11 months later when they were looking for a spot in Kansas City. And I have a I 20 years in the restaurant industry in Kansas City. And they asked me to help them find a spot that would be a good fit. And, you know, after 11 months of looking at darn near every open space in Kansas City, we uh, landed at the spot that we're in, in the crossroads. And once that was done, I said, you know, my actual strength is in marketing. Could I take a crack at that? And uh, took over the marketing for the opening and have been with them ever since. Gotcha. I, I like that story of like kind of starting organic, not even really in the arcade scene, and then just kind of happening into it because the bar underneath them opens up. And you caught me off guard there when you said an arcade that had bottle service. That seems mm -hmm. really strange to me. When I think of an arcade, it's like retro vibe, not at all thinking like a club yeah. scene. So I guess that kind of leads right into the next thing was what sets up down apart from other arcades in the country other than not having bottle service, apparently. Sure. Um, yeah. And, and I, I don't think the one that had, that they went to is still there. Uh, really where we try to set that distinction is understanding our niche. Uh, we're, we're not ever going to have the location with the most games. We're not going to be the most pins, you know, it's just understanding that our clientele comes back for incredibly good service great selection and that nostalgia factor. Um, you know, it's not always about having the most game. It's about having that one game that was special to you as a kid and being able to find that game when you walk into an arcade, uh, especially for people who aren't super avid gamers. Uh, a couple real good friends of mine, brothers, uh, they, had, they grew up in a real small town and they're not, big arcade gamers but the second that they saw double dragon uh which was the game that was in the gas station in their town of 450 people they spent the rest of the afternoon uh the first time we all went together playing through double dragon and instead of hanging out with my friends my job was just to run them over cups of tokens as they uh, went through and finished this game because that was what brought back that feeling to them and so really our what we're striving for beyond just having great games and great beers and stuff like that is finding that combination of feelings that gives people that nostalgic twinge that brings them back and taps into that emotion that is so powerful that reminds you of how much fun it used to be to go to arcades and how much you used to enjoy these games. But now you're an adult our tokens are still just 25 cents at most. So you, you can afford to beat these games. You can afford to relive those, you know, childhood memories, but do it right and do it with a beer. Yeah. Having that beer in hand is always a, a big plus to being able to play all these old games. Yeah. Um, so you talked about the business model a little bit before we got onto the show, obviously when we were mm -hmm. talking on Instagram, 
Uh, let's talk about the business model for Updown. Like, dive into the uh, economics for me, and just like some of the arcades do the pay to play to get in. You do, or you do like buy tokens, or you buy drinks, and then tokens come along. Like, there's a whole bunch of different things. What's your guys's model, and why is that the route you guys went? Sure, we uh, we have tokens. Uh, tokens are never more than a quarter. All the games work on quarters as well. Uh, if you well, want to bring in a bunch of quarters, you know that that will work for the coin max. Uh, we went that route. Uh, from my understanding and talking to the owners and you know my personal experience, a lot of times when you do free play, uh, you don't get a lot of turnover on the games. You don't, you know, you don't have you don't have people getting up and moving on to the next game or feeling like there's some reason why they should, because all they have to do is keep hitting a button to continue playing. Um, And that's great if you're the one on the cabinet, but if you're one of the 20 people that were hoping to play that cabinet, it's, it's not as much fun. And there's also not, there's an economic feeling of reaching into your pocket and putting in another token and deciding to make that decision to put in another token in this game and continue what you're doing versus going somewhere else. Uh, you know, I, I think everybody who plays arcade games has has that had that moment where they just reached in and said, no, I'm, I'm going to go further. I'm going to beat this. I'm going to continue. I'm going to beat that score. And that's just a feeling that you get from tokens that you don't get when you just hit a button or when the game's on free play. And, you know, even, I, I can't imagine how many tokens I've spent over the years, how many tokens I've given away, how many tokens are in my couch. Uh, but I still have that feeling every time that I drop in another token that, okay, this is a challenge. This is game on. I've, I, I've paid my fee to compete with you. And I think that's important. I think that's part of the authentic experience. Um, especially for people who like me who grow up playing these games and you know saving their paper route money or their lawn mowing money and making that decision to convert it to quarters to get to play uh that meant something and it it's part of the nostalgia yeah i totally agree with that i mean you always think of going to the arcade dropping that coin in hearing that click seeing the one credit inserted and then you can play and you get to that point where you're like i got another dollar left I could put into this game. Like I'm going to beat it with this dollar. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, I think that kind of translates into the, the indie games now that are, you know, it's more like you get to play with your friends. So it's like, I got this game, you got next game and it kind of adds on and just keeps rolling. So let's talk about that side of it. Like you said, you're the point of contact for most indie developers that are looking to get their games into up down. Yeah. What do you look for in indie games and what might put a game on your radar? Sure. Um, you know, we have feelers. I mean, there's always people hitting us up. I mean, I remember we were we were probably one of the first dozen spots to have Killer Queen. Uh, we had it in our Kansas City location, I believe, six, six and a half years ago. Um, and before that, I had people on Twitter. Uh, if, if there's any Killer Queen players out there, uh, Rowan Barry uh, are the are the people who hassled me endlessly. Uh, about this game and i i looked at it and i'm like that thing is huge and it costs as much as four skee-ball lanes uh at least if not five or six uh and i really didn't think there was a chance of us getting it but uh the owners played it and they watched other people playing it and they enjoyed it and next thing i know i get a message on my way back from vacation 
uh, I had been in Mexico for a wedding. And when I landed in the United States in Miami and finally got all my voicemails, I had all these voicemails about this game and had to sit down and prepare press releases and, and informational releases and a how to play killer queen uh, explanation uh, before I'd ever even played the game. And so, you know, having people hyping up your game goes a long way, especially if they're people that we know, you know, independently. Uh, but also just having it out there where people can play it, getting it out into markets where, you know, the owners can run across it. I mean, I, I don't go to any city without stopping at their local arcades. I mean, if I go out of town, I'm going to be in the arcades uh, to see what's out there, see what, not only what's new, but, what haven't I got to play in a while? You know, we have probably over a thousand games company wide, including in the warehouse. And, but there are still games that when I walk into an arcade and I see something that I haven't seen in ages, man, I geek out. I, I still get that same emotion that people do the first time they walk into an up down, the first time they walk into any arcade and they see these games that they haven't seen in a while and get passionate. I still have those same feelings. So, exposure is huge uh playability you know just something that you can pick up easily but still presents a challenge for a long time and i think a a big part that you see a lot in some indie games uh that i think is really cool is different tactile experiences uh, as people who identify as gamers and especially as arcade gamers can sometimes forget that there's a huge portion of the market that doesn't that's intimidated by joysticks and buttons that they don't have good experiences because maybe they had an older sibling or a younger sibling who used to always beat them at arcade games. So they just decide they weren't good at arcade games and don't like arcade games, but they'll play a shooting game. They'll, they'll hold on to a steering wheel and do a driving game because that's different. And, and that feels more like something they're familiar with and, the different tactile experiences can be an equalizer and create a completely different experience. I mean, when you, when you walk up to a Tempest and you spin that wheel or you walk up to an old Star Wars and you grab the yoke or the, the controller, the joystick on a Tron, uh, those, those are experiences that bring back memories to me that, that kind of, you know, touch intrinsically on things that I love about arcade games. And so what I love about a lot of games that I'm seeing out there now is just that they're not a joystick and a button. They have other, you know, you think of Black Emperor, you know, I mean, having, having all these different ways to move a game that we didn't have back in the day really is a great equalizer. And when game developers think about who their market is, um, they think of gamers. But realistically, um, I think every bar ha needs to have what I call Angela games. Uh, if you've seen The Office, if you think of if everybody from The Office went to a bar, uh, you know, I, I like to think that if everybody at The Office went to Up Down, they would have a good time. Except Angela. What would what would Angela play? So you got to have a Tetris. You got to have a Doctor Mario, or a, you know, Super Mario Brothers on the you know, Nintendo caps. Um, you got to have those games that 
even the person who who doesn't consider themselves a gamer or isn't going to just join in because everybody else is joining in, you got to have something that makes them have a good time and keeps them there. Because I know every time I go to a new city and go to a new arcade bar, how long I'm there is directly tied to how long the person I'm with wants to stay there. Because I I have no desire to leave. If there's if there's great games, I'm staying all day. Uh, so you've got to have those games that makes everybody feel welcome. And you know, if you're sitting in a room that has sixty joysticks and uh, button games, the one that has a has a typing keyboard <laughs> uh, is is amazing. The one that has a wheel, the one that has a steering wheel or a gun or anything like that is something that could draw out someone who doesn't consider themselves to be a gamer and make them want to play. So that, that's an incredibly appealing, you know, the, the, the idea of something that's new that we think could drive a new audience. Yeah. That, that just made me think of uh Wonderville in New York. They, yeah, they yeah. only have like, they're all indie games. They've, they've mm -hmm. got a keyboard, they've got foot pedal games. They've got um, what's the, it's like a wobbler or something. It's yeah. I, I like, I can't even wrap my head around that game without seeing it. Mark has tried to explain it to me, but there's so much going on. It's just like a little laser. It's like a single pixel. It's interesting. Um, but let's talk about indies that in your, in your words launched well. So yeah. you said that they, they came out, they made their public kind of debut. Well, like uh, killer queen, galactic battleground, death ball, uh, black emperor did a really good job too. Yeah. Um, kind of tell me why you think these games launched, right? Like what did they do? Right. Well, um, in, in there's different answers for different ones. I mean, I think obviously uh, Black Emperor had the advantage that it was introduced, at least in our Minneapolis location, during, you know, Bumble Bash, during the Killer Queen National Tournament. Which that was uh, insane. I was there for that. You could not get around at all. Yeah. And so having the game there for that, I mean, obviously uh, got a, a great, you know, that was a good rub. <laughs> you know, if you're if your audience, you know, if you're at Bumble Bash and have the creator say, hey, here, check out this game that we got. Uh, that's that's a good way to launch a game and build an audience um, with uh, Death Ball is another great example. Um, Tony uh, was out at Killer Queen tournaments at our locations. And even before I, I might have been before there's a cab, I mean, he would set up a folding table. Uh, with like a tabletop box, uh, you know, and and uh, TV monitor in the background and let people play that way. And, you know, we had talked and I didn't, you know, I didn't think the price point was right and I wasn't sure and I wasn't certain. But, you know, while I was over at the Killer Queen tournament, I was watching over my shoulder in Des Moines, you know, watching all these people play death ball and how hype they were getting and, you know, then started to get messages, you know, when you, when you bring in death ball, what's going on with death ball. And, you know, it, it, when things like that happen, you can't, you can't avoid it. Uh, at some point you just go, okay, let's, let's give this a shot. And then we started looking into it and it was fun. And that's another huge part of it is, you know, you've got to have Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Simpsons and, you know, the original Gauntlet. Um, but if we get real about it after the nostalgia factor, 
they're not real fun games. Um, you know, for four player side scrollers, uh, you know, I don't think Turtles and Simpsons, other than the licensing, are all that exciting compared to something like, you know, Wild West Cowboys of Mesa or Ninja Baseball Batman. But when we bring in those games, you know, people aren't drawn to them in the same way. So you always got to have the fun games that the regulars and the and the staff enjoy playing. Um, at our Kansas City location, we have a game called Dio, which is just happens to be the most fun of all of the, you know, flyover 1942 games, in my opinion. And that's what I play when I go in. I mean, I enjoy the game. Or, you know, a simple game like Bank Heist, uh, which if you've never played it, it's, it, it triggers my anxiety more than any other game I can remember uh, because it's such a simple game, but the simplicity of it makes it so annoying every time you fail. And so this is just a pressure builds and uh, I will dump cups of tokens into it just to, just to finally beat that game. And so having those kind of, having those kind of fun games matters too. Yeah, let's let's jump into there's there's one thing you said in there that that caught me and you mentioned I think it might have been the like question before was Killer Queen's 1400, right? Death Ball's mm-hmm. 600. So, as someone that hasn't played these games or anything, Sticker Shock sets in immediately. Mm-hmm. And as someone that sells these games and promotes these games, I hear the same thing from arcade owners all the time. So, let's talk about the economics of indie games. Like what do you need to see from an indie game to actually be like this is going to be worth the money we want to bring this into this location or that location? I I think you might have left a zero off. Um, on, on which one? On, on the prices. Uh, I mean, we're we're talking thousands. Yeah, I said fourteen thousand on oh, Killer okay. Queen oh, okay. and six thousand on Death Ball. I'm I'm sorry. I I, <laughs> I, I thought you said hundred, and I'm like, whoa. I wish. Yeah, they'd be would they be in every arcade? It'd be easy. Yeah, I, I I'd have them lined up. Um, and that's you know, and that's a big that's a big factor because when you're looking at a game like the Simpsons. Okay. I mean, we can buy a Simpsons on the resale market. Um, I'd say a Simpsons 800 low end 14 to 16 high end, fix it up. And it's on the floor and you know, that people are going to be on that game. Um, so how many of those games is one indicate or indie game going to be worth to make up that difference in in price and you also don't have the nostalgia factor of you know no one grew up with it no one has that memory of playing it at the bowling alley or the arcade or or wherever they played uh so that's a huge barrier to overcome so really you you've got to stand out and be different um and you know, be able to draw that attention and create some hype behind the game to where the community builds. Um, and, you know, you've got to get buy-in from, you know, if you're not going to create the hype behind a game and it's not just going to blow people away and get them excited to, to come back in and play again the next day, um, it, it's, it's a tough sell. Um, and so, you know, a huge part of it is 
you know, a commitment from the partners to, you know, because if we're, if we're buying a game at that point, at that price point, uh, we're partners in it. Um, you know, creating hype, creating, you know, coming in, showing people how to play, getting them excited about it. And that's a lot of work. Um, and it's a, it's a lot of extra effort and, you know, get the staff excited about it. You know, and when we launched Killer Queen in Kansas City originally, I mean, you couldn't stop the staff from grabbing a cup of tokens and showing somebody how to play when they walked over to it. Uh, it became problematic uh, because the staff got stoked about it and they got excited about it and they wanted to, to sit around and show people how to play. And I was spending a lot of time at the bar just, you know, bringing over a cup of tokens and learning how to play queen and fly around in the corner without dying while I'm explaining to other people how to play the game. Um, so really it takes an effort to create that hype and that excitement, uh, especially if there's not an existing community to, to do that. And that's kind of what has to happen for, uh, you know, the, the level of that game to catch on for a game that's brand new and doesn't have the benefits of nostalgia or, you know, familiarity to catch on. And, you know, having, having partners like that and having, you know, Tony going out to death or to killer queen tournaments and showing death ball uh, meant that as soon as we brought it into Minneapolis, there were people in the killer queen community who were lined up to play death ball and show other people how to play death ball and get them excited about death ball. And that made it a much easier decision to give it a shot. Yeah, I, I totally understand that. And I, I mean, I'm I'm just thinking back to like all the times we were showing galactic battleground off at conventions and stuff. And it was cool. We'd see people play it. um, We'd get a buzz built and then it kind of fade off just because the convention's over. Right. But Mm -hmm. When we took it to Bumble Bash 4, I want to say it was 4, in uh, Tennessee, everybody was playing the game. We held, we held tournaments. We were side-by-side side with Death Ball and Armed and Gelatinous and all these other indies, Switch and Shoot. And it was super cool to see the community come out and be like, okay, what else is available for us to play? Because the Killer Queen community has been awesome. I've been I've had a great time getting to know everybody. And it's it's really cool to see how like invested these people are, like coming from all over the country to play the game. And it was pretty wild. Um I guess I'm I'm gonna move into like your history with arcade games because I'm sure. I'm really curious to hear more from you about like where you've where you came from and everything. So you've been in the arcade scene for a while. I'm assuming you have a collection of your own. I mean, you obviously have games stored in the warehouse that you probably were like, I'm gonna get this for myself. Um, when you're out there looking, what is your holy grail? Like, if you could say like three games that you will buy if you had the chance, what would they be? Um, now I don't have a large collection. It's not, you know, I'm a, I, you have so many I, arcades to put the games you want to have in. I mean, you yeah, don't have to spend yeah. your own money doing it. Yeah. I can, I can, I can request games <laughs> to be brought to uh, one of the locations and get to play them. Uh, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm still, I'm still a renter. I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, put, put too much in my basement. Uh, but, no, I, I, the games that, you know, are super high priorities to me that I love. And I'm also, though, I'm a Pandora's Box Retro Pie 
you know, I have access to everything I want at home, but I can still run to the arcade and play, you know, most games. Um, the things that are holy grails to me, um, I first and foremost, Tempest. Uh, I love that game. That game was real important to me as a kid. I, I spent a lot of time playing it with my uncle. Uh, I was fortunate to get to play that game as an adult at the bar with my uncle again and finally beat him. Uh, that would be a, that would be a huge one for me, especially because, I mean, those vector monitors are tough. And, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, if you see a Tempest, play it you might you might not get another chance to be playing in 10 20 years the people who can repair these monitors and keep them moving uh and the you know games like tempest or the original star wars you might not have the option to be playing them in 10 20 years uh or at least not nearly as not in an arcade bar um i still play any variation of the Williams Midway uh, baseball games from the late 70s, uh, you know, double play uh, in particular is my jam. But there were several games in that series or by multiple developers that were the same thing. I, I love those. I'll never pass up. It's such a basic game, but it has incredible replay value. Uh, the pitching dynamics, the outfielding dynamics are just so cool. Um, never pass up a chance to play those uh and third uh game that uh is at another arcade bar here here in kansas city it's one of mike freeland's games uh and before i got involved with updown mike freeland was who's a big collector here in kansas city uh was really the only you know he he was the guy who had games that I could play. And so anytime he did a pop-up or someplace, I, I had to be there uh, to play him. But he has a game called Space Zap, which is not particularly well-known. Uh, but when I go into that arcade bar and they have 80 or 90 games, uh, I'm going to spend most of my time playing Space Zap just because it is a blast of a game. Uh, I think 81 or 82 uh, and you know what these games have in common is they're not the most complex, they're not the most graphically intense, but they have very high replay value. Uh, you know, I think sometimes we we got to where we tried to do more with more. We tried to get make games more, you know, longer and and graphically enhance them and make them more complex, but for a quarter i just want to have a good time you know i i don't you know back in the 80s you know or really until i was at updown i had you know good you know the, one of the perks of the job is free tokens um you know i i didn't have the ability to go complete these games i didn't have the ability to beat the games i just wanted to have a good time i wanted to get back to the third level of Tron so I could figure out exactly what the light bike pattern was or where the tanks were going to go. And so games that give you that value for 25 cents uh, are still games I love. Yeah, those are definitely good games. The last one is is a new one to me. I haven't heard of that, but Tempest, obviously, yeah. I've, if, if I see a Tempest, like, I'm giving it a go because you're right. It's it's very hard to find a Tempest mm -hmm. that's in like good working condition. Um, so 
the last thing here that I'm going to ask is advice for people that are looking into starting an arcade bar. So we're still seeing them pop up all over the place, which I love to see. It's awesome to see arcades like coming back, getting this resurgence. What advice would you give to someone that's looking to get into the space? And what would you say are like important things to be successful in the space? Maybe some pitfalls for them to avoid early on. Sure. Um, you know, it's it's really the same with every, you know, it's the same kind of things that you would think about with every business. Um, and I think too often people who do, who get into it with a passion forget, you know, the core critical things. Um, you know, know who your audience is. Uh, don't just say everybody loves arcade games because not, not everybody does and not everybody is going to be drawn to the same type of arcade. Uh, you know, I, people when there are other arcades and cities that we're in often view it as a competition. And as far as I'm concerned, once people realize that it's more fun to drink beer while playing arcade games than drink beer while sitting at a sports bar watching lumberjack competitions on ESPN Ocho, uh, you know, that's good for all of us. Uh, and, you know, as long as there's someone sitting at the bar board at Applebee's, there's room for more arcade bars. Uh, so, but you, but each one is going to fill a different niche. Uh, you know, we're, we're a little bit louder. We're a little bit darker. Uh, you know, the lights are lower, you know, and it's, and it's more intense uh, of an atmosphere uh, that, you know, is going to skew towards 21 and over and, and, you know, a lot of people who are also looking to drink beer, uh, not just play the arcade games. Uh, other places, sure, more family friendly, more well-lit, bright, you know, different types of locations. And they're trying to get, you know, the families and the kids and things like that. So really know who your target is. Uh, instead of trying to be everything to everyone, decide on your niche and go for it. Um, you know, there's some great pinball bars out there. Uh, Minneapolis has a spectacular pinball bar. Uh, we're, we're not going to compete with them on pinball. Uh, we, have, we have great pins and, you know, they're cheap and all that stuff, but they're a pinball specialist bar. Uh, you know, Starcade. I mean, we're, we're not ever going to have more games than they do. Uh, you know, and so you don't try to be everything to everyone. Decide what your niche is and go for it and really lean into that. Um, and, you know, that's really the key in my mind that that we followed and that I see other people really not going for in the same way of really clearly defining who the market is and then specifically doing the things that's going to make them choose your bar and choose your arcade and want to go there and have a good time. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Cause I mean, I just, while you were saying that I thought about the up downs I've been to, I've been to Milwaukee, I've been to mm -hmm. Minneapolis a bunch of times. That's my local one. So one thing that I've noticed with you guys is your layouts in every arcade and the videos you sent me are really unique. Like you've got mm -hmm. like upstairs porches and downstairs and like these nooks and all this, all, like everything is so unique compared to a lot of arcades, which is just it's a flat floor and you've got a ton of games, just row on row on row. So right. I think and, that's one thing you guys did really well. Well, and it's evolved. 
Okay, so if you've been to a couple different locations, this is, and for other people watching who have been to other locations, this is going to make a lot of sense. But the first one in Des Moines was a basement. Uh, and, you know, they just took it over and 27 days later, they opened it. When they came to Kansas City, they wanted more space, but they're really worried about what would it look like if it wasn't busy. So if you go to our Kansas City location, you see a lot of angles. You see a lot of games set up to where, you know, there's mezzanines and there's lower levels uh, that are going to make the bar feel full, even if it's not, or make it not feel empty, even if it's not crowded. Uh, and that, of course, led to the complaints of, well, it always feels so packed, always feels so crowded. So we went to Minneapolis. That's a big, long box. I mean, it's tall ceilings, you know, lots of airspace, lots of rows, kind of more of that standard feel. Um, but it still kind of felt overwhelming. So Milwaukee was next, and it's broken up into different floors. It's got some great uh, mezzanine areas where you can look down on the floor below it, stairs, lots of patios. Uh, and that was the first one that we built from scratch that, you know, it was, you know, on a, you know, let's lay this out how we would want to do it. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's an evolution over time that is directly... Uh, inspired by customer feedback um you know i've been uh, over seven going on eight years of this job um i've read every single comment that's been posted to our facebook page our instagram account or tweeted at us in that time i've read every single one of them uh because that's the kind of you know when people have feedback that's where great ideas come from um and, you know, things like we don't have strobe lights because people with light sensitivity, you know, I, you, maybe not something you would think about, but somebody comments it and it becomes instant. OK, well, let's do that everywhere. And so getting that feedback is super important and understanding and then making adjustments as we've grown to, you know, try to be better. Listening to the customer, it's it's such an easy thing to do and it makes such a big difference in the business overall um that kind of wraps up everything i wanted to ask you david so i'm just gonna say give shout outs to anybody in the business that you want to as well as any kind of social media links that you want to shout out uh, uh you know uh i i, I think i i think i gave uh I, I think i mentioned mike and i i sure do appreciate mike you know i appreciate all the people who you know year after year come out and show up support us play arcade games uh you know it, it's funny i this is not some you know it, it, when you see seven locations you think of it as some corporation uh yeah it's just it's just three friends who wanted a place where they could play arcade games and not have a velvet rope and not pay a cover and not have bottle service but do it right and we're passionate about buying and restoring games and, you know, reliving a little bit of their childhood. And I'm really glad that I got to work for them and, uh, you know, do that, do that myself. And, you know, we just really want to provide that to everybody we can. It's, it's, it's just a, you know, this is a people business. There, there's, I don't know if there is a, a corporate arcade, uh, you know, 
we're just guys who like games and we're really, really fortunate to get to do this for a living. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, shout outs to everybody that you mentioned. And I mean, the people that keep coming back are the ones that support it and they build yeah. the scene and these smaller, the indie scene is growing from all these two. So um, thanks to all those people. Um, I'm going to put all the links to up down in the description so that everybody can check them out. Go follow the journey. Obviously, probably talk to David if you've got suggestions in the comments. Yeah. Um, and if you hey. like what we're doing here at Indie Arcade Wave, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And, and if you have David, a game, send you. it to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if you if you have an indie game that you're trying to pitch, uh, you know, hit those hit those socials. You you now know where they're going. Yeah, all you got to do is just send a message on Instagram and you'll you'll get in touch. I mean, it was what a day before you got back to me. Like it's it's pretty easy yeah. to get in touch with you guys. Yeah. It's I mean, it's this is this is what I do. You know, when the messages <laughs> come in, I I try my best to get back to everybody right away. And uh, if you've got a game, if you've got an idea, if you've got a suggestion, you know, the, these things are all taken seriously. You know, let us know. Awesome. Well, like I said, all the info is going to be in the description. Thank you for coming on, David. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for all the wisdom and the information for the indie scene. And for anybody that's still watching, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And until next time, peace.